Professor Philip Novak, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you on. So you're a professor of philosophy and world religion at Dominican University, mm-hmm. and in addition to teaching those courses, you've written numerous articles and books, and one of your books, The World's Wisdom, which is an anthology of sacred texts from the world's religions, I use in my class in high school, uh, sacred text class, uh, which not only I and the other teachers, but the students also really like, find it very accessible. And this is going to be the general arc of our conversation, looking at religion in the modern world. And as a way of providing a bit of backdrop, looking at some of the demographics in, say, the Bay Area and other metropolitan areas in the United States, as well as, say, Western Europe, increasingly more and more people are non-religious. Doesn't necessarily mean they're atheists, but I know San Francisco tied Seattle as the second most non-religious metropolitan area. Portland was number one with about 44%. And I know that's similar to some of the numbers in Western Europe. So given that in a secular society, it seems that we're trending towards more and more non-religious people. The first question is, why does religion matter in the modern world? Okay, um, my big answer to why religion matters in the modern world will be that it it matters in any world. Mm. Uh, Pre-modern, it still ma- and it will matter in any future world, uh, barring one thing, which I'll mention uh, uh, later on. So I'll make that case, but that that takes that'll take a little while. The shorter term question, or the the the, the foreground question that you ask, is about the decline of of uh, religious belief, um, and that's a, that's a tricky one. Um, because if you look at if you take Seattle and San Francisco as norms, right. uh, you may not be getting a true picture of the uh, of the globe. Uh, we are we are one species of seven billion people, and uh, I I don't know that um, uh, Seattle and, and San Francisco are, are are representative of that. Even if even if they were, I'd start to say things like, when people identify as non-religious, would they be the same people that say, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual? Because that opens up a whole new set of questions about what they mean by spiritual, or what they mean by religious, in defining themselves against, but willing to affirm themselves as spiritual. And behind that that self-identification is, I'm spiritual, is often uh, the very beliefs or practices that I would call traditionally religious. Uh, so I don't know that uh, religion has uh, is has fallen off in influence as completely mm-hmm. as some of the surface statistics seem to uh, suggest. Um, but is there a worldwide decline in religiosity, generally speaking, and, and without defining it? We might have to define it as we go along right. so we keep things, uh, keep things straight. But, oh, there's no doubt about that. But now let me provide some numbers so we get a better, a better feel for uh, global demographics. 
in in the last four hundred years, years of the evolution of modern empirical science, which is a global phenomenon, science is, has 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 uh, uh, impressed. Uh, bright, learned minds everywhere, in every country, north, south, east, west, every color, people have turned on to the power and wonder of uh, science. I'm all for it. I think science is near miraculous. Uh, and that's great. And what science... Uh, science doesn't address the question of God because they say we can't find any evidence for or against it. We only deal with that for which there's material evidence but they basically bypass it. And as one of the early scientists said, uh, I don't know if it was Lavoisier, uh, Laplace, it was Laplace in France, uh, he said, uh, God, I have no need of that hypothesis. And, and, and it's true, the more science found out about the world, the more that... God as an answer to those older mysteries about what made the rain fall and what created the world and, and, and uh, went away and more and more people seeing that uh, the God God talk wasn't explaining uh, didn't explain what science could now explain they dropped the God idea uh, completely or it, it started so 400 years ago, before science began, I would say probably 100% of the world was religious. Right. Uh, in tribal societies or in developed societies. And for better or for worse. By the way, I'm not a religion promoter, as you'll see in this interview. Religion for me is a tremendous mixed bag. Right. Beautiful possibilities, but also awful, terrible um, uh, results of religious thinking and behaviors on, on planet, the worst kinds of human uh, degradation and, and cruelty in, in the name of religion. So we'll get to that too. But okay, just getting back to the numbers now. So since 400 years ago, when we could say roughly 100% of the world's people were religious in some way, how about now? Well, this is the kind of question that the Pew Research Foundation spends zillions of dollars right. in sending people out all over the world, uh, and they published in 2010. Uh, I'm sorry, 12, uh, but they had closed down their research in 10 and had, had it took them a couple of years to gather it. They figured that 86 percent of the world's human beings still identified with one or another identifiable religious right. tradition. That doesn't mean much. Those 86% could be awful people. I'm just saying, right. but yeah. from the Pew standpoint, they people are still identifying right. with some kind of... And in those 16%, did I say 86? Yeah. I should have said 84. In those 16% that were non-religious, the Pew survey, quite strangely, includes not only people who are avowed atheists and anti-religious, mm -hmm. but also people who answered the survey, I'm spiritual. Right. In other words, if they didn't belong to a particular known religion with a name, but said I'm spiritual, they were just classed along with the atheists. Interesting. And so that's not a... So if right. we allow for that, then what have we got? Maybe 10% atheism? 10% sure. anti-religious? Now, 10% of 7 billion people, that's a lot of people. 
And that's the growth of atheism. And it's been growing, uh, you know, as, as, uh, as, as science has pretty much made progress, that's been happening. And as far as I know, it's a trend that will continue into the future. Lots, lots of my best friends <laughs> and so on. Uh, I really admire atheists, uh, at least my friends, because they've thought through the issues so carefully and there's so much that doesn't seem to recommend God and faith and just to name a couple of religious right. ideas uh, to move on. There's so many arguments against it that I understand how a rational person could finally turn against uh, the notion of a higher-than-human order of things uh, or the notion of God or living by faith. Uh, so I understand, and I think that's likely to continue to be a trend. And yet I think it will only be a, a, a partial trend among human beings because there'll be some other deeper instinctive thing within right. within human nature that will continue uh, to manifest in one form or another of religion. Maybe all the religions right. on planet Earth that we know today will die off, hmm. but religion itself will go on in one right. form or another, and we can get to that later. Go ahead. So I have a. I just want to back up a bit because yeah. you alluded to the importance of defining the terms we're using. Yes, and. I wanted to get a sense of how do you define religion? Yes. I can't take much uh, credit for that because um, since there have been so many wonderful definitions of religion offered in the, uh, in the, in the contemporary period, last uh, 30 or 40 years, by people who had paid their dues by not just a, a Christian of a hundred years ago, just thinking about other religions and 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 and, uh, but people who have really studied the world's religions since the data on them has become more and more available, and this is only the last hundred years. So we've had a a uh, some wonderfully powerful uh, definitions provided for us by uh, scholars of religion, and I just want to I just want to. Um, Bring one, uh, bring one up from my desk here, uh, just to give us something to uh, work with. Yes, um, and uh, these are, as I say, these are from uh, scholars who were already working from a broad. Uh, palette of knowledge. Uh, anthropologists, uh, most of them historians, and I only have four here. I've, I, as a world religions professor, I've been collecting definitions of religion. Yeah. I've got a case of uh, uh, 20 uh, uh, that I think are the best of the best, and I'm just going to use one just to ground us right. somewhere, because yeah. I don't want to <laughs> turn this podcast into a recitation of, of definitions of religion. Uh, but the definition, of course, has to include, I, I must say, not just the world's religions, the big mm -hmm. mommies and daddies of, 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 the, of, uh, of views of the sacred in the last 3,000 years. Humans, Homo sapiens' religious history goes back about 100,000 years. Right. And 90,000 of those, uh, those years, 
the only religious uh, the only religious manifest manifestation we knew of was uh, primal religions, um, and the definition I'm about to uh, suggest, so that we have some kind of ground to work with, is very well aware of the primal religions and of the so-called great religions like Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, and I think these this definition is. Uh, does just what a definition should do. Captures the generality in a way that's uh, broad enough to get all that data in, at least into a rough uh, uh, clarity, uh, but obviously not so, uh, and, but not so broad as not to have any uh, meaning at all as a definition. Yeah. So the one I'd like to suggest right now is one by Gerhard Lenski, an anthropologist. He said, religion is a system of beliefs and practices about the nature of the forces ultimately shaping human destiny shared with members of a group. Hmm. Um, it doesn't commit to a value judgment about religions being bad or good. It simply says religions are sets of beliefs about, to use a phrase that Lenski doesn't yeah. use, a superhuman order, hmm. a higher than human order of things. Uh, and, since we've never found a religion that's purely beliefs, uh, religion, as always, as it's worked out, worked its way out through humans, we're systems of thought and action, thought and action, so they're always beliefs and practices. Right. And that's what religions are, systems of beliefs and practices, let's say about ultimate things or about the fundamental uh, 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 and 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 uh, ultimate questions of human destiny, and the practices associated with those with those beliefs. Right. And I, I'll I'll just mention one more definition similar by Yuval Harari, the author of Sapiens, a right. great uh, book. Uh, religion is a system of human norms and values founded on belief in the superhuman order. He doesn't say whether that superhuman order exists. I personally think it's an open question. I can't tell you that God exists. We can talk about my own faith later. Right. But the fact is that what religion is, time after time, over and over, whether you've got zillions of uh, spirits and gods and goddesses and evil demons and positive angels or one God or an ultimate non-personal Brahman or Dharma, it's always a higher-than-human order that people look to and mm. somehow engage with and, and thereby live out aspects of their lives in what they think is some kind of harmonious relation, either ritually or morally, with that higher order. So that's what I mean by right. religion. And when people say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Now, I haven't interviewed every one of those million people, <laughs> right. but I've talked to a lot of them over the last 30 years, and I think what they mean is, yeah, I do have some kind of belief in a higher-than-human order, and I do do certain things that are in harmony with my spiritual beliefs. But I don't belong to a church. I don't belong to a group. And that's what I mean by religion. Religion is a group thing. Right. It's an institutional thing. It's a thing where people join together and share with each other. I don't have any of that. I'm a, I'm alone. I don't share a thing. I don't go to church. I don't share with a group. 
but see, that doesn't matter to me. You're still religious, uh, even on your own terms, if you're so-called spiritual. Right. Um, so, uh, so I hope that I hope that yeah. helps us a little bit to get some some grounding. I think it's great because often when we talk about religion or God. Uh, there's so many different definitions people can be using that we're talking past each other or we're disagreeing when one of the things I've done with my classes is saying, what what is your definition of God, for example, especially when you look at the Abrahamic tradition. Uh, People generally have a sense of it's an old white man in the sky, which many people in today's secular world just find kind of absurd to literally believe in that. And unfortunately, many people, that's their grounding in what religious belief means and yet when you actually ask people to define it they're not even quite sure what they even mean by those terms if you look at the dictionary definition of god for example Mm -hmm. i think one of the third ones is ultimate reality right and maybe many true believers don't have that as their placeholder Mm -hmm. but it is part of the definition and i ask certain people do you believe in ultimate reality it Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you know what it is Mm -hmm. it might just be mysterious but nonetheless it's interesting to be able to define our terms and uh, you could have someone that might be a christian that has a very similar kind of definition of what ultimate reality is to say an atheist Mm -hmm. even if they're ensconced in a particular tradition with various kinds of values right To get back to your definition, what I think is interesting about this, as you said, it both encompasses the great world traditions as well as some of the indigenous uh, beliefs uh, that exist today as well as go all the way back 100,000 years ago. It encompasses in the sense of says what their their basic structure is. It doesn't try to evaluate. It says uh, religions are those those human human, uh, sets of thought and practice that fit this this kind of moment. And I think what's interesting, that allows uh, for people to have a much more literal approach to their beliefs, to the supernatural, or even symbolic. And I think one of the things I notice is that what many uh, people that have grown up with a technological scientific education, what they're disagreeing with is the literal versions of religion, thinking there's nothing other than that. Did Moses literally part the Red Sea? Was Christ literally born of a virgin? So I think one of the values of, say, modern science, the Enlightenment, the Age of Reason, is stripping us of some of those literal versions that clash with cosmology or evolution. That's a positive thing. But to assume that nothing is left is, I think, shows not a very uh, educated understanding of what religion is historically, and it can be for many people today. Um, So one of the things I'm curious about, just looking at religion, I know Karen Armstrong, the religious scholar, Mm -hmm. has said historically, using the Greek terms, there was always mythos and logos. There was always two ways of knowing within the Western tradition, which I'm sure there's equivalents in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Logos corresponds to reason, science, technical understanding, which was valuable even thousands of years ago. But then there was the mythic dimension, which makes sense of the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Mm. When there's illness and death and disruption, where it's hard to logically comprehend, that was the realm of mythos. Yes. And so I and yet we have seemed to have lost for those that have become non religious, that mythic side seems to have been eclipsed right. with 
reason. So I'm wondering if you could just talk about these two ways of knowing and perhaps the uh, the mythic side of of the world's religion. What's the value? How does that complement reason? I'd be happy to. So you ask about mythos and logos. And mythos, as you know, is the Greek word from which, uh, which meant story. So myths are stories, stories are myths. They're really the same word. And lately, um, it, it's, it seems to be coming on the, um, the dashboard of, of, of many scholars, but two, um, I'll just mention two uh, for your audience. Uh, Harari, who I've already mentioned in Sapiens, talks about the profound evolutionary importance of stories right. for human existence. Not Before we talk about sacred or profane stories, true or false <laughs> stories, just stories. Right. That is to say, things that won't maybe ever be able to be determined uh, scientifically through empirical evidence but we human beings have always needed on top of whatever little, whatever we could figure out about agriculture or now, you know, uh, astrophysics, we still need stories. So Harari and Sapiens makes this book-length argument about the profundity of stories to human survival and human existence even into the future. And then a man who I don't know, whose book I haven't read fully, but the book is called Storytelling Animal, How Stories Make Us Human by Jonathan Gottschall. Uh, he's got a number of sentences dense packed that I just want to read into the record that will then help me, uh, will launch me in, to answer the rest of your question. So Gottschall says, Story, sacred and profane, is perhaps the main cohering force in human life. A society composed of fractious people with different personalities, goals, and agendas. What connects us beyond kinship? Story. Story is the counterforce to social disorder, the tendency of things to fall apart. Story is the center without which the rest cannot hold. And the way Harari, uh, just pausing Gottschall for a moment, the way Harari makes this case is, the reason we were successful as a weak animal over all other plant and animal species is that we could cooperate. And we couldn't cooperate until we had symbolic ways of, of making our thoughts known to each other, that is to say language, and the, and the way we knit ourselves into cooperative groups was by telling stories that we could identify with. That's how we... That's how we cooperate. Instead of fracturing into animistic individuals, we say, oh, we all share that story. Now let's go out and be successful in the hunt tomorrow. Animals and plants can't do that. We did it, and that's the key to our success, and still is today, even when the stories are so-called secular stories, like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States and the Declaration of uh, Universal Human Rights. These are stories. They're profoundly important and rationalistic. But there's still st science can't justify those. They are our modern mythologies. We commit ourselves to these stories because they seem like the right stories. Okay, so here's, but here's Gottschall talking about his story in a historical perspective. Throughout the history of our species, sacred fiction, 
And by that he means religions. The point I'll be making, religions are fundamentally stories. And it's from those stories that religious beliefs are formed and then people act in accordance with those stories, with ritual or moral behavior, and that makes up the warp and woof of religious traditions. And that's always been the case and still is the case. Sacred fiction has dominated human existence like nothing else. Religion is the ultimate expression of stories' dominion over our minds. I would add, for better and for worse. Based on what the sacred stories say, believers regulate the practices of their lives, how they eat, how they wash, how they dress, when they have sex, when they forgive, Hmm. and when they wage total war in the name of everything holy, end quote, by Gottschall. Somebody who thinks religion is a bad thing, I mean, without redemption, uh, uh, might say, well, we should get rid of stories. But the point of these deep analyses by people like Gottschall and Harari, who are not normally religious people or religious at all, is that we can't live without story. And when I say religion is going to be a part of any future human world, not just the modern world, but a future world, that's what I'm relying on, that we'll still tell story. We won't be able to live with scientific facts alone. Right. There's still some things, given the, given the kinds of creatures we are, that we'll have to make up stories about. And those stories will naturally take the form of what we've always called religion. Even though, as I say, all current religions might pass away, still there'll be new beliefs and new practices in alignment with those beliefs, which will capture some uh, human um, uh, allegiance and attention. And that, we see this some in the, in the post-apocalyptic films and right. all of that. New religion, right. new, new commitments to the sacred, even bizarre ones, will <laughs> right. take the place of the old one because people just can't live by bread alone, it seems. Right. I mean, it'd be marvelous that we could, but apparently we cannot. We seem to need to tell these stories about the superhuman order or a wider, greater destiny. All right. Now, you call Logos and Mythos two ways of knowing. Um, I dispute uh, that, or or I can't share that usage, because here I'm I'm, I'm deeply influenced by science, and when, to me, the word know means... um, uh, that which is uh, 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 consensually validated by a group of people. Mm-hmm. That's what knowledge and facts are. Uh, and uh, uh, knowledge and truth, say, I mean, if you really have knowledge, you have a fact. <laughs> if you have a fact, that's, right. that's true. And those are objective in their core, meaning there's no such thing as a fact for you that isn't right. a fact for me, if it's really a fact. Right. So when people speak of subjective truth or subjective facts, I think I know what they mean, but for me it's a misnomer, it's an oxymoron. I mean, I'm trying to speak very, very technically here. Therefore, knowledge, we have lots of good examples of it in in science or even in history. We know that George Washington was the first president of the United States. We know that water molecules are two, two atoms of hydrogen and one of oxygen and a million other things we know. 
but stories which are the mythos, not the logos. Right. People want to say they know, or their stories mm. help them to know. And they say, I mm. know my God because I believe the Bible, or because I, I believe the Bible, but God has also spoken to me, and I know God, and this is my own personal religious knowledge. And I say, no. I mean, I, I say, Phil Novak can't go there. Yeah. If you're asking this scholar, sure. mythos is never knowledge. Hmm. It's story. Hmm. And we, as human beings, apparently simply have to share our stories and maybe even argue about our stories or maybe start making try to try to sell each other on saying that well let's see that there are levels of stories like literal and symbolic or sure. something like that but all that still doesn't get us necess- it still doesn't get us to facts right. to knowledge and I, th- I mean, I'm open to God being proved, or I'm open right, to a superhuman yeah. order being shown, or I'm open to the fact that the uh, that the ultimate reality is love, or or right. that there's a higher intelligence than humans. But I don't know that any of that is true. All I have in Buddhism, in Hinduism, in Christianity, Islam, Taoism are stories right. about that. They're great stories. They are the stories that have that overcame all those hundreds of thousands of primal religions, even though they, many still exist today. But generally speaking, in the Axial Age, that's when these great religions rose up right. and really sort of consolidated the religious thinking of most of the planet's population into these groups of outlooks we call the world's religions. Right. And from... And and from that general point, they're all stories. So there's the Christian story, there's the Hindu story, there's the Buddhist uh, story, and there. But but that's as far as I can go. We need stories. We want the story that seems most true. But I can't share the 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 same. Uh, uh, vocabulary someone saying right. that I have subjective knowledge or that right. my mythos gives me truth sure a uh, mythos is mythos let's right. accept the fact that we're storytelling animals right. like Gottschall says and I'm happy to still be a professor of religion and to think about it deeply and to even cur- encourage the virtuous life <laughs> and self-transcendence without ever being able to say that I know yeah <laughs> Uh, I'm just saying this. This is a good story, and I would argue with other storytellers that it's you know that right. basically we'd have to lay out the criteria and everything sure. and what we're going for. But that that certain religious stories are you know are, let's say right. might have an advantage over the the secular story in the long run. That's fascinating. I, I really like how you were able to sort of define your terms and what knowledge is. Yeah. Uh, I have a question for you because it seems to me that on one hand, there much of knowledge in that regard can be uh, validated through empirical observation, fact, what we know about science, and yet uh, some people have said there's different ways or eyes of knowing. There's the eye of the flesh, the empirical uh, things like astronomy, biology, etc. But then things that are very critical to science and technology, mathematics is of the mind. 
Uh, so you don't see negative square roots running around in the world. You have to learn geometry in order mm -hmm. to argue about the validity of the Pythagorean theorem. Mm -hmm. Same with the eye of the flesh. You have to look through a, te a telescope to see the rings of Saturn. If you mm -hmm. don't do that, you can't really argue the validity of it. Yes. And then there's a third eye, which not as many people, even within the religious traditions, might exercise these injunctions, the eye of the spirit, right. which I think is at the esoteric core of many, perhaps not all, traditions. Buddhism is a great example because of all the meditative uh, disciplines that in a community of practitioners, after engaging in zazen, if you're in the Zen tradition, right. there should be evidence for the assertions. It might not be empirical, or it might not be mental, but it might be of big mind. And so I'm wondering how you weigh in about, is that, are there other ways of knowing if there are right. specific disciplines and techniques? Right. They might not disclose. Uh, yes. Got it. This, yeah. I believe uh, the eye of the flesh, the eye of the mind, the eye of the uh, spirit is, is a um, uh, was a, a suggestion made by Ken Wilbur uh, right. in, in one of his one of his books as a kind of um, um, uh, multi levelled epistemology. Let's right. say, and I I I, I think Wilbur's a, a genius in many ways. So all all kudos to him. But now. Again, to be critical or talk right. from my perspective, um, uh, yes. Uh, briefly, when I was going to science and knowledge and facts, I only mentioned, you might say, one of your eyes—the eye right. of the flesh, uh, the telescope, the microscope, the electron microscope, right. or plain sight, or whatever. But right. uh, what I for, what I didn't squeeze in there is also logic. Right. That is to say, sometimes when you know something you know the logical deduction of that because of other logical... So sometimes pure logic, as in mathematics, also can reveal knowledge or seems to reveal well enough to convince whole communities of people, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's knowledge. So purely from a, um, a, a, a rational uh, you know, starting point that everybody... Um, let's say, uh, uh, everybody accepts, you can deduce sometimes out of pure logic, you don't need the empirical. Okay, but eye of mind and eye of flesh, they're the territory of science. Right. And, uh, okay, now, how about the eye of the spirit? Um, please come at me very hard on this, uh, if you wish. I'd be happy to debate to make sure that uh, you know we have substantive rather than just verbal disagreements if we have disagreements at all um, um, let me start by saying Ken Wilbur I know very beautifully talked about ah but the eye of the spirit you see the mystical traditions of the religions the esoteric traditions they had injunctive practices. They didn't just say God was or Dharma was or Tao was. They gave steps. They said, live a life like this. Practice like this. Sit still like this. Twist your body like this. And do all those things as, as laboratory procedures, but the mm -hmm. laboratory is your own mind and body. And then you will see mm -hmm. what we're talking about. You will be able to confirm as objective... Well, 
I know about those injunctive practices. And in another conversation with you sometime, maybe we'll talk about that because I've been interested in the Buddhist practice of meditation for a very long time in my life. Um, out of which has come profound results. But that's just that's just to say all where I honor where Ken is going. Mm. But I can't go as far as saying, even metaphorically, eye of the spirit. Mm. I find his eye of the spirit language already mythos. Mm. Interesting. Yes. And um, uh, all those, the Buddha, let's, the Buddha's enlightenment and then all the Buddhists who claim to be enlightened, but when you read more and more of Buddhism, the different enlightenments and the, and the, and the different yeah. amounts, and you start to wonder, wait a minute, what are we talking about here? <laughs> and then it starts to go back on texts after right. all, and then you, you realize that there were probably times where there were no enlightenment, and, and people have just been using these texts and quit. And what are we doing when we're using text and right. quoting the text and saying, see, see, the master, he had an experience. He said he, he said he experienced ultimate reality. That's mythos. He told a story. I experienced right. ultimate reality. But that's right. not a fact. That's not knowledge. That's a claim. And I don't care who makes it. The Buddha or, or, or Swami Vivekananda or uh, Ramana Maharshi. Right. To me, it's the realm of mythos. Right. Unless, of course, Ramana and his disciples and his disciples and, and can start, um, what do they call it in science, uh, having a, a re recurring the, uh, the, the result, uh, confirming the result right. again and again, so that everybody becomes a Ramana or something sure. like that. But without that, it fades into, oh, the story of Ramana, and he said this, mm. and he said that, or the story of the Buddha... It, in the realm of mythos. So maybe there is an ultimate reality called Dharma. And maybe there is an ultimate reality called God. And maybe they're the same. Or maybe they're different. But all that discussion, all those possibilities are in the realm of story, it right. seems to me. Let's talk about it if you want. Let's talk about it with open hearts. But let's not presume that we know something that we don't. That's Socrates warned us against that right. <laughs> 25 centuries ago. And I think we need all a profound humility, no matter how deep our mystical experiences have been. And think about this. All these stories are based on the masters having so-called mystical experiences. The Buddha's awakening, Ramana Maharshi this, Swami Vivekananda that, all the great teachers, all the great mystics, all the great... Um, and yours... I'm sure you've had mystical experiences, and, and mine, right. very, very deep. But the end of the day, <laughs> now that we know about brain science, how do we know? How do we know that what we experience is an objective reality and not what we ate for breakfast? <laughs> in fact, we cannot say. Sure. We cannot say, and therefore we're in the realm of story as soon as we start talking about ultimate reality. Right. You know, I find this uh, very useful. It doesn't make stories bad or oh, no. not important, but it's They're just tremendous. not in the realm of, right. of fact. And I know that from what neuroscience has said, that there's a part of our brain that's manufacturing narrative. It's constantly trying to stitch together and that's make it. sense of. So it's, it's literally 
creating story yes. in ways that we don't. Gottschall and Harari right. uh, cite that those yeah. modern findings, and right. which is which is so fascinating, and that is a fact. Yeah, you know that so, is so, a fact, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, that that we are generating a sense of story. Now, one of the things that I would love to delve into a little bit more, because we're definitely uh, talking about it indirectly, is the relationship between science and religion. Mm. And I'm just wondering what kind of relationship you think these two have. Many people have weighed in in different ways. Famously, Stephen Jay Gould, the paleo, the... um, Biologist. Yeah. <clears throat> he uh, and Was talk- he a paleontologist? He was a paleontologist, yeah, yeah, paleontologist. And he talked about uh, non-overlapping magisteria, that they're two separate domains uh, and never shall the twains meet. Science deals with fact, empirical fact. Religion deals with values, meaning. Morality. Uh, and uh, The art yeah, in and, life. Yeah, and purpose. Right. And some people Which are all to, expressed in terms of story when it comes down to exactly. it. Exactly. Because it... Right. And, so, and some people would There's agree. no way to make a art out of the is. Right. Science finds out about the is. But we still need the art because we're valuing creatures. Why are we valuing creatures? I don't know. Do right. you? Uh, Nietzsche said we're valuing... No, but... But... But it seems to be yeah. biologically deep. That is to say, cult- cultural anthropology is to say, oh, culturally relative, we're all different right. depending on our culture. Culture conditions us down to the bottom. Biology has had its say in the last 50 years. Right. That old cultural relative stuff, it has really slid to the, in my view, to the right. to down. It's fallen off the table of consideration. Uh, meaning, oh, I mean, there's still culturally relative things, right. but there's a whole set of psychological adaptations, psychologically adaptive behaviors that are shared by every culture known to history and, and ethnology. Right. Um, these are cu- cultural universals, and there are over 400 of them, uh, and no less a person than than uh, Pinker, Stephen Pinker. Right. Uh, uh, made a full appendix in his book um, um, uh, against the blank slate. It's, it was, okay. it, yeah, um, and and it, so we have, we I think I think it I think the story is winning the day or the the theory is winning the day that there is a human nature after all. Right. We're not culturally conditioned down to the last, but we share a common biological nature across 7 billion people, which has resulted in... Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, this, well, I'll just say the same sounds awfully bold, but the same psychological adaptations everywhere, and one of them is, seems to be our need for meaning, some kind of orientation, right. Right. Uh, value, and all of that. But that's what story speaks to. Right. And so it seems that in some respects there's these different domains and perhaps they don't overlap. Oh, you were asking. And, right. and yet, and, and when I, I want to get your take on this. So you have someone like, say, Sam Harris, the, yeah. the pretty outspoken atheist, but right. also is a spiritual practitioner. His book, right. Waking Up, Spirituality Without Religion. Right. And, he, and in, his, in another book, The Moral Landscape, he yeah. says that, in fact, science can illuminate some of the things like values and ethics. Uh, of course, people are going to agree or disagree with right, that, but right. he seems to be uh, putting his claim down that science can, in fact, illuminate. We do know through psychology, which some people would claim as being some sort of science, a social science, that what purpose and meaning, how important they are, so those now are sort of facts that they are important. 
Um, how do you look at that? Do you feel that science can illuminate things like values and ethics and help determine that, yeah, meaning and purpose, in yeah. fact, are necessary and yeah. maybe guide us? Or do you think not, that, very, not so much? Not very much. By the way, I love Sam Harris. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> even though I can't go with him everywhere he goes, sure. I find him so... A great writer, very provocative, right. such a rational thinker, and uh, uh, and that's great. And I, the book that I, I read, the moral landscape, but the book that made most uh, impact on me was the end of faith, his first one, a powerful book. But as I pointed out to many of my mm-hmm. students, this incredible, no holds barred, right. no no cap, no uh, prisoners taken, uh, <laughs> a critique of religion and God and get. There are no fewer than seven passages where 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 he himself says, "But I don't mean to say that spiritual practices aren't important and necessary; that we can't spiritually transform ourselves, and that these are." And and of course, right. he knew that the spiritual practices he's talking about comes out of religious traditions. <laughs> yeah, right, so yeah. so he was a lot more uh, how shall I say uh, balanced than right. the the tour de force. Uh, uh, negativity toward religion and spirituality right. seem to suggest. So all power to him for his fantastic critique of a certain kind of religiosity. Right. But if you look at Harris, he too is interested in Buddhist meditation, yeah. and Buddhist practices, and, and that kind. Of, he's interested in self-transformation by methods that he well knows cannot be scientifically uh, proven right. uh, or, or, or completely justified as yet. Uh, so I can't follow Harris by saying that science will illuminate values, that science will be able to prove um, what is good and what is evil. Although his his argument is a very Buddhistic argument, which I kind of like, namely that, come on, except for some very... Uh, you'd have to really labor to think of exceptions. What we really mean by good is that which benefits creatures and doesn't cause them suffering, doesn't injure their well-being in any way. And what is evil is that which does, to one degree or another, um, uh, conflict with or damage the well-being of, of creatures. He says it's a perfectly wonderful thing that science has shed light on and right. that we and that our, our own... Um, our own common sense shines light on and seems to be a wonderful starting point for uh, uh, an uh, absolute ethical presupposition from right. which we can derive all ethical systems. Okay, uh, but I know he's got a lot of flack for that. And I've, I've seen some of that, and I just haven't cut through it enough to right. realize what fine points are at stake. But I'll still want to, I think I still want to hang yeah. out with most people who say science can tell us about the is, yeah. but it can't make that jump from the is to the ought. Right. For that, there'll always be that element of a leap beyond the is to a philosophical proposal, which is another form of story. Right. You know. Okay. How do I see science and religion? You mentioned Gould. Yeah. Gould has gotten his share of... I mean, the Gould was like remarkably... Um, well respected, but it seems like a lot of people felt that little book of his <laughs> on science and religion was like a slapdash or a, a, a flabby. I think I've heard it mm. called. And well, maybe I'm convincing, uh, uh, confessing my own ignorance, <laughs> but I thought it was pretty damn good. Right. Uh, 
you know, so it doesn't it doesn't solve. One could one could make up good questions that I suppose. I mean, I can't think of any right now that that Gould could uh, that uh, Gould couldn't answer in that book. But I think basically he was on the right track. Religion is not a competitor of science because it's not in the same level of discourse, uh, which is what we've been saying since right. we talked about logos and mythos, between stories and facts, uh, between values and facts, that kind of thing. Science is what, uh, what, you, what you said it was. I don't need to repeat it. This uh, about matters of fact and uh, compiling evidence for these matters of fact and winning consensual validation and that kind of thing. But human beings have always needed this, this art realm, this value right. realm, uh, these proposals outside of what is known in order to, even if they're illusory, <laughs> they needed yeah. some, some theory was better than no theory at all. And as we sat around the campfires and little kids asked the grandfathers, how did all this get here? You think the grandfather said, oh, I don't know. No, they made up stories. Well, <laughs> 17 gods made the sun and 14 others made the moon or something. That, and that was it. That, right. was, that was the beginning of that tribal religion. Anyway, so so I like Gould as far as he goes because he's he's treading on very, uh, with, 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 I thought, great insight and right. good stories and fine arguments that science is about the realm of empirical fact, empirical logical fact, empirical logical, logical empirical discourse, and religion, partaking of the mythos story realm, is about that which can never quite be objectively determined. Uh, and and, right. and those, those start with, of course, most close to us as, as, as humans, uh, with our oughts. But sometimes go beyond, well, wait a minute, if, if we ought to do this and ought to do that, maybe there's a bigger ought in the sky. Uh, right. Maybe there's a moral structure to the universe that that the cosmologists haven't found out about, that's right. still invisible to, and that kind of thing. So, and he leaves that he leaves that open. He says, "Well, religious people or religion religion discourses will continue telling those kinds of stories and sharing those kinds of stories and proposing them and arguing about them. Let them be. Right. Uh, but you know, uh, religion." And in all that, this is not to say if if one says that that doesn't mean that you continue to allow to 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 uh, lead our 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 uh, our civilizational life by Gould's yeah. uh, grand pronouncements wouldn't mean uh, accepting Islamic extremism or, or Christian right. insanity or something like that just because it is religious. It doesn't mean that just because someone says a story doesn't mean we have to respect it because we have no right. evidence. Somebody could tell a story that has negative impact on human beings and by that, by right. that first criteria of, uh, that we, on which we base all our laws, as long as we don't hurt other people, we can right. say that those, those stories we can't, we can't deal with. We don't care if they if your Bible says they're true right. or how ultimately they might be true. They're hurting people right here and now. Therefore, there's no place for them in our society. Right. So some stories are better than others. At least in that, that, in, in that, that, that they can they can arguably bring more bring more uh, beneficence and less suffering right. to uh, the human beings. Right. And it, it made me think that uh, looking at odd and is mythos and logos, so within the context of certain religious traditions and even certain sacred texts, 
there might be a certain category error if they are claiming what is. Humans existed with dinosaurs. The Earth is only 6,000 years old. There's no such thing as evolution. Which, of course, if people get caught up in the literal version of those stories, then it is going to clash with science. So given that in some cases we can determine that certain aspects of sacred text, if perceived literally, aren't true. Mm -hmm. How do you look at those stories? So should, I guess there is an intersection, an overlapping with the faithful that do proclaim that what the Bible literally, or what the Bible says, is literally true. So in that regard, there is an interface, and sometimes those are the facets that people seem to cling on. When we think of Islam, most people think of terrorism, because generally that's what's conveyed. People aren't thinking about the golden age of Islam, all the cross-pollination of ideas that the Islamic empire took, the idea of uh, shunya, emptiness in Hinduism, and formalize it by making it zero with an algebra, or taking paper from the Chinese and introducing it to the Europeans, um, they helped to spark the Renaissance yeah. because of the Crusades. So most people aren't thinking of that when right. they think of Islam. Uh, nonetheless, there are aspects, as you're saying, right. stories that really aren't appropriate uh, for today's times. Uh, so, so it is so complex and fascinating looking at how there has been this relationship right. uh, from the very beginning. Right. It can be fraught, but do you think that what do you think science and religion can, if anything, learn from one another? Oh. Yeah. Um, oh, I, uh, religion, I think, must be the student there for the most mm. part. Mm-hmm. Religion needs to all... I mean... Phil Novak says, religions everywhere need to accept well-documented science and go from there. And every every culture has in fact done this. They take what is kind of known about the world and they build build out from there. But to... So for religions to to take things literally and be at war with a with a mode of knowledge so powerful and so well um, evidenced as science is just suicide or, <laughs> or, or, or so much terrible dust and cyclone get, getting nowhere. So religions must pay attention to uh, science. But they must also also be clear where the limits of science are. And scientists themselves help, tell us where those limits are. And from there... Uh, you know, religions, uh, how should I say, can still uh, uh, take off or be creative, and 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 maybe I can address uh, some of that in a second. But you mentioned, I just want to clear up a couple of things. Right. You mentioned literalism, right? Which is one of the things, of course, a religions would have to abandon. If they, if they sat at the feet of science and took matters of fact, they'd have to abandon the 6,000-year history of Earth, right. uh, the non-evolutionary cosmology and that kind of thing. And they should. By the way, sorry, so many things occur to me. <laughs> Even Pope Francis accepts Big Bang and evolution. Right. He's on record at the, at the Pontifical Academy of Sciences saying, yeah, Big Bang, evolution, that's the way it is. 
Right. Of course, then he says, but no problem for me. I believe God produced the Big Bang <laughs> yeah. in evolution. Yeah. Right. But, and that's a, pro- that's a problem for a lot of philosophers. But the point is that even this 700 million Catholics, this guy in Rome who is the head of, and has whole, whole schools of intellectuals working for him, scientists, philosophers, theologians, who are no dummies. And he's saying, yeah, we accept right. Big Bang and evolution. So, and, and it doesn't make him a non, or it doesn't, doesn't lessen his faith, you know, right. that kind of thing. So he's showing that, uh, uh, that people can, uh, without, without trepidation, accept science and go on from, uh, go on from there with their, with their God stories, or with their God talk. Um, uh, yeah, so, literalism, yes, it's a problem. And and wherever we can, I think we have to kindly, uh, gently fight the battle uh, against literalism, um, uh, because it, it 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 leads to all the all the all the unnecessary conflicts that I just mentioned, and, and Gould Gould deals partly with this uh, as well. Um, but we, here's my, here's my uh, back backflip though. Uh, <laughs> but we can't expect to take a sledgehammer to people's literalisms. Hmm. Uh, they have to be weaned away or eroded away, so to speak, and generally speaking, sure. why? Because religions, religious stories. Yeah. As well as even political stories about our nation and <laughs> um, and human rights, and that people receive therapy from these things that they not, might not be able to get anywhere else. And religions are therapeutic stories, and they've always been. Even if they're sacred fictions, and even if we find those fictions false, for those people who think they are true, even literally true, they are lifelines. I wouldn't want to take that away from people before they were ready to give it up. Right. So I only want to fight literalism kind of on the public stage or when I'm in a classroom and I'm a professor. Mm. But I wouldn't want to go to my to the to the priests and ministers and rabbis and imams of my students yeah. and tell them they ought to give up their damn literalism because it's evil or wrong. Yeah. I that has to go that has to go slowly. Mm. And I think it is yeah, going uh, that way. So I don't want to I don't want to crush out literalism except when Literalism leads to violence or the right. same pain or a human degradation that we've already pointed to. But then that uh, anything that produces human suffering or degradation mm-hmm. would be my reason for opposing anything. Not only literalism, but right. X, Y, and Z. Sure. Uh, so that's it. A, a literalism that doesn't <laughs> uh, eventuate in... Oh, and I know you could say, oh, literalism, yeah, it doesn't create suffering, but it makes the mind small, and, and the, those people who are trained that way, 
Uh, yeah, I guess so, but, you know, uh, we as kids have to swallow a lot of little fictions in order to develop into adults that mm. then abandon those fictions. So can't we understand that, mm. that, that given the disparate economic and social strata and evolutionary status of, of, of human minds that, that, that some of us aren't ready to give up, uh, you know, the, the comforts mm. of those literalisms? So it's a it's a toughie. Right. It's a toughie because you've heard of Dan Goldman who wrote this book called Vital Vital Lies. We've heard of Sacred Lies or mm. Therapeutic Illusions, mm. uh, Ernest Becker, The Denial of Death. Uh, lots of thinkers have come to this point where they say mythos can be sometimes is that realm uh that we don't even know if we're telling the truth. We might be lying, but those li- those mm-hmm. lies have shown themselves to be profoundly therapeutic. Mm-hmm. So this is where I get off my scientific thing and become right. a kind of humanist saying, yeah, I'm a student of religion. I'd like everybody to look at religion symbolically and accept everything science says and kind of go from there. But, but I'm not about to become a Sam Harris who launches, you know, right. like super passionate broadsides against Islam as a whole, as if Islam, even in its literal version, isn't doing quite a a bit of good and has for centuries, humanizing people across the world. I think that can't be forgotten. But but literalism and the way it tends to get hijacked by political interests and how Islamic terrorism has hijacked Islamic values and the Islamic... uh, phrases and that right. kind of thing for its own purposes it's just so sad right. literalism and uh, and fundamentalism used for narrow and what tend to be humanly demeaning purposes right. it's a great it's a great sickness and i understand therefore why people are mad at religion right. and want to condemn religion but I, like you say, sure, throw out the bathwater. Throw out all the bathwater, yeah. but don't let the baby go, go down the drain. <laughs> and the baby is somewhere in the story. Right. We will continue to need stories. Absolutely. Says Loyal Ruse, uh, or a name I haven't mentioned yet, says Harari and says Gottschall. Now, last thing. I mean, last thing in this one big long answer. How are science and religion going to work together? Well, I already said religion should sit at science's feet, accept its facts, and go from there. What does religion need to do? Well, it can't do anything on its own, but those people who think of themselves as still thinking religiously, that is to say, as involved in the kind of conceptuality and discourse whereby they're telling new stories about the cosmos, they're accepting the 14 billion year evolutionary uh, evolutionary unfolding of matter, stupid, as far as we know, a stupid, <laughs> dumb, blind manner that somehow miraculously produces life and then even more miraculously right. produces mind and produces a mind that grows to you. And they, yeah, it seems like an accident, and it may well be. But some people want to go on talking about what kind of, in what kind of universe can that kind of evolution happen? Right. Do they have a right to do it? Of course they have a right to do it. And what must science do? Science must continue to say, we don't know, we can only deal with the empirical. This is where our power comes from. If you want to talk about that stuff which might be true, beyond the stuff that we can determine is false or true, please go right ahead. In fact, we even want you to go ahead. And that's where I see great 
scientists like E.O. Wilson, the biologist right. at Harvard, and Harari, oh, he's a historian, right. saying, we need the humanities, we need the right. humanists to continue to, in a broad sense, tell those stories and use that language and create those discourses that science itself cannot afford to get into, right. but which humans seem to need desperately. You know, that's it's really fascinating. And I know that <clears throat> looking at what are the boundaries uh, of these different domains, and I believe that was one of Kant's main uh, points in the critique of reason, looking at what are the limitations of reason. Yeah. So it can't begin to postulate things beyond its boundaries right. Um, right. that it doesn't know. But so often that begins to happen in the same way science critiques uh, religion. I will for, limit reason in order to yeah. make room for faith, <laughs> right. said Kant. Right. right. And I really Not, like... And he didn't mean Christian. He, yeah. meant, he meant he was tired of, of religion, sort of religion standing or falling with proofs of God or proofs against God. Right. And the brilliant Kant, uh, maybe pursuing, not pursuing that directly, but trying to figure out right. how far the mind could get on its own, realized that even magnificent, as you, well, you put it, even magnificent science and rationality has its own internal limits. And beyond that, we can't say yay or nay, which doesn't mean we should shut up. I mean, sure. Wittgenstein said, uh, that which we cannot know, we, therefore we cannot say. Right. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're bad at shutting up and, and starting to meditate. We want to keep on talking. So we have to, you know, tell stories. But I think, I think yeah. uh, uh, who, who were you just uh, talking about? Not Gould, but uh, who, who were you just mentioning? Uh, Kant. Kant. Would, that's what he said. Right. Yeah. There, there's, a, there's a discourse beyond... Right. Yeah, which, which is not... It doesn't do what science does, but it does something. Maybe it's, you know, there's a transrational domain, perhaps. And yeah. I guess the only way is to go, what are those techniques that might disclose that reality? Um, that, that's a question right. that only through investigating one, perhaps, can either weigh in on, on that reality. Right. I did like what you were saying about, on as a professor, you're going to um, critique literalism, but you're not going to do it outside of that because of just how nourishing it can be, unless, of course, that literalism leads to certain kinds of violence and hate mm -hmm. and so forth. But... As you were saying, just the exposure as religion has to science and technology, there's almost a weathering process that's slowly eroding that. And increasingly, more and more people that are religious also do validate evolution. There are Christians and Buddhists and Hindus that totally are card-carrying members of their tradition, but extol science, exactly. recognize what it offers, and we'd be hard-pressed to not recognize how much it has changed all of our lives and how, yeah. how much we use it. So I think that's interesting. Right. I did want to um, hear what you had to say, uh, uh, looking at many people in places like the Bay Area, which of course aren't examples of the world, but right. nonetheless, more and more metropolitan areas are becoming more secular uh, and ensconced in technology. And so as people begin to abandon religion, there's many things they might... Um, throw away unintentionally like meaning, purpose, and even something like the sacred. And so I'm wondering from your standpoint, if people just drop religion, but then don't figure out where do they find meaning, where is there a sense of the sacred, what is lost when we mm. lose a sense of the sacred? Mm. And of course the sacred doesn't just have to be the domain of religion per se, but 
if you drop it and you're not thinking about it, the likelihood is it might not be there. So what is lost when we lose a sense of the sacred? Um, yeah, that, uh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure I can accept the, the premise sure. in, 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 in the question uh, because um, who are these people? <laughs> sure. Um, that uh, that drop religion and there therefore have no meaning, uh, no this and uh, no sense of the sacred. First of all, um, uh, some of those people. Uh, I, I do think meaning is some kind of quasi-absolute, by which I mean uh, even the psychological study, the secular psychological mm. studies show this, people have to have a what for right. somewhere along the line. And that's that's purpose. Yeah. That's, that's meaning. How And they might not even think through it. But at least my purpose is to never borrow money from my friends. Or my purpose is to take care of the children that I spawn. Or, or, or my purpose is to... <laughs> Make right. my mother and father proud by becoming a super zillionaire, or uh, you know, no matter how many people I have to step on, I still want to make my mother and father proud. That's their meaning. So people have meanings. Um, they don't need they don't need God or the, sure. the or the previously. How should I? I don't want to. I don't want right. to cast aspersions. They don't need the previously structured and and right. historically sanction kinds of uh, maps of consciousness that right. we might call the world's religions to make meaning. Their meaning, we might, we, you and I as philosophers might look and say, oh, that's kind of an impoverished meaning. Sure. Well, let's not be so cocky. Right. Uh, it, uh, they, they, so people have senses of meaning. They, they, they find them in some way. And when they lose them completely, I suppose that's when we you know, have people... Uh, uh, committing suicide in record numbers and, and that kind of thing right. in our in our modern world. Uh, but the uh, okay, but the thing about the sacred, uh, and they have values too. Again, right. the, the, uh, you can't live without some distinction between what I want and what I don't want, which are values right there. Um, uh, a person might not even think of whether he can defend whether these ob right. values are objective. But people have meanings and values. I think I, I think that's just there in the in the in the equipment. Nor do I think they need. I've already said that reference to the sacred in its traditional modes to have that. But what happens when they lose? And, and but let's talk about those people now. We, but it's right. getting to be a smaller and smaller it, group, I think. Uh, it who, is, but who, but those are the demographics that, for the most part, we are a part of in places like the Bay Area. Maybe. And I say it anecdotally. Maybe, so but how many of those how many of those techie people are now going to mindfulness oh, weekends? Oh, exactly. But and here's where I think it is interesting. Or going down, or using their bucks to go down right. to Esalen because. Because there's something missing I, at work. I, well, I agree. Yeah. So or starting to take microdose on LSD because <laughs> yeah, something is just not quite working at work. Well, you know, I, no matter I, how much money they're making. I agree. It's more nuanced. And so one of the studies, uh, Will Damon, who's a professor of psychology at Stanford, 
uh, adolescent, um, expert in adolescent psychology. He's basically saying, and he's looking at the United States, so he's not looking at globally, uh, but he's basically saying that many people think that the crisis of the youth is stress. In fact, it's meaninglessness. And I think it's a byproduct of uh, the inroads that science and technology have made. And as a result, um, people are beginning to look at their the traditional religious background, if they even had one, mm. as not being compatible with the truths of modern science. And if they don't have that background, mm. that it might be more symbolic or there mm. might be stories that are meant to be interpreted in different ways. Mm. It's not to say they can't generate meaning, mm -hmm. but often um, they're left to create it on their own. Um, and one of the psychological mm. studies that I found fascinating, the difference between meaning and happiness. Mm -hmm. Happiness is about making yourself feel good, where meaning is about being a part of or contributing to something greater than yourself. Right. And what the research has shown is those people that have <clears throat> lots of happiness, mm -hmm. but very little meaning in their life, have the same gene expression of people under chronic adversity. In other words, if you don't have meaning, it's not good for your physical and mental health. Mm. Um, and it's not to say that there are people I know that have never been religious or atheists and have a tremendous sense of meaning of being a part of or contributing to something greater. Right. But that's not something that they may have been, um, they have created it. I think many people flounder because the schools, the society aren't manufacturing or helping them. Right. And so as a result, I'm really talking about a very rarefied demographic within yes. the 7 billion people. Right. But those are, for the most people, my friends, my colleagues, the people I work with. Yeah. And, and I do sense that within that uh, milieu, there are people that are struggling with a sense of what does it all mean. They don't turn to their traditional stories. Science might be profound at being able to illuminate this, uh, this odyssey of the universe. But what does it mean? Right. Right. And so they're left going, I have no idea, and, and i got to make right. money, i got to get good grades. Where is there the time to contemplate these ultimate questions? Yeah. And what are the sources that resonate with them that allow them to feel uh, a part of something greater, more meaningful? Right. So I agree with what All, you're saying. And you, you beautifully describe the predicament or the right. difficult situation uh, that some, maybe many, moderns, uh, uh, urban moderns, right. especially, maybe find themselves in. But don't forget that if their meaninglessness feeling gets very acute, uh, it could go. It could go very badly. Right. But it's precisely out of something like that that we might say leads to a moment when the sacred grabs you by the short hairs <laughs> or kicks you kicks you where the sun don't shine or something like that. <laughs> Meaning an experience of the sacred doesn't have to be blissful. Right. It often brings you to your knees, hmm. maybe even in despair. Right. And you cry out and you suddenly maybe somebody right. answers. Don't forget the whole thing of all the Alcoholics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous, uh, that was found, that Bill Johnson, or whatever his name was, that founded the first one in 1930. Right. It's helped millions of people. I'm sure there are critics of it. I'm sure at times it doesn't work. But the central pillar of that is, and it's 
in totally secular language, but it says you've got to you you've got to turn yourself over to a higher power. Right. However you define it. Right. And then you have to do searching moral inventory and start and start, you know, right. making up for, but so these are people who maybe lost meaning enough to start right. drinking, not only just drinking, but drinking heavily. Or maybe it was just a, a psychophysical habit problem. It wasn't me, a meaning deficit caused. But however they got into it, right. and here's one of the big, if not cures, at least helping things that says it's a matter of relating yourself to, <laughs> to a something greater than yourself. Yeah which we can't even say is there. And therefore, we allow you to define yourself. You could even say it's the group. So, so that's happening out there. I have to, yeah. And that's why I wouldn't say, therefore, we have to minister to those people. Right. Or therefore, we need, to, we need to get the schools as talking about the sacred again so we don't have young people falling into meaningless. No, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, I, not that education doesn't need to be rethought constantly. Yeah, yeah right. it does. But I think even modern meaninglessness will lead people in their own way to confrontations hmm. with despair, like the great existentialists who, like yeah. Kierkegaard, then had to decide, either for or against. Am I right. going to live my life in terms of a... And when they get that far, they already start tuning in, because they hear, they're, they're watching TV, this guy... They, they know that there are other stories about there. Right. They know that there's a Jesus out there, there's a Buddha out there. They've said wise things and people right. mention these things like that. They haven't paid attention. They haven't had time. But they know there are resources if they want to look. But they haven't been driven there yet. And sometimes maybe these people who've dropped everything else, who've sacri- not sacrificed, who've just right. limited their life to a gung-ho pursuit of excellence in their and in their in their job and, and the accumulation right. of, of wealth, um, right. they get there. You know, it's interesting you brought up Kierkegaard because I know he said that it's up to the individual, not society or religion, to sort of create a sense of meaning. And here was a, a Christian existentialist, so he was somebody that took this leap of faith. Right. Not every existentialist went down that particular road, but I think it does speak to the times that that ultimate sense of meaning has to be customized to the individual, has to be tested against uh, the truths of, of science, and everyone then figures out, perhaps for themselves, where they stand <clears throat> within that. I, oh, good. Except... The word customized. Hmm. I don't know the Kierkegaard. Right. Some pe- some of my students say, "Well, I'll choose religion that that uh, I like because you know it has a little bit of this and a little bit of that, right. and one that fits me." The cafeteria Just like model. All the, yeah. Huh? yeah, the cafeteria, cafeteria model. model. <laughs> or you hear about it? It's like a designer thing. Like right. I, you yeah, know, everybody's a... telling you how they're going to cater to you, and so the thought is, "Oh, I'm going to get a religion that caters to me because right. religion, after all, is about me." And yeah. but. Guys like Kierkegaard and the Buddha and Jesus, they're like, no, 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 yeah. that's not it. If a religion doesn't challenge you, <laughs> challenge right. you, um, not for the challenge itself, but in one sense, it's 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 it stands uh, against you. If it doesn't, in one sense, negate you or get you out of or right. challenge your old habits, it's not going to move you toward the new meaningfulness. Cause it'll just be another support for what you've already been doing. So that's yes, a great point. You're not looking. So when Kierkegaard's saying, "Fate," he had to take a personal leap because right. he wasn't willing, 
like everybody else, to presume that they had the truth by going and sitting to listening to the Lutheran pastor in the Swedish National Church every Sunday speak about the certain truths of, uh, you know, Kierkegaard couldn't stand it because he saw how superficial that was. But then he realized God meant something much deeper. And it wasn't something custom for him. Sure. It caused him fear and trembling unto death. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's such a really yeah. uh, great, great point, because I think we can get caught up in uh, customizing too much towards just placating the ego. Yeah. And to a certain degree, right. the ego needs to be challenged. Um, I think so. Uh, I think that's the general teaching right. of religions, yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I want to be mindful of the time, and I know that I could go on for a while, but uh, hopefully we'll have a part two. Okay. And... Uh, as I know that you have limited time, so is there anything else you would like? How would you like to bookend this conversation? I think we've done it. Uh, I feel I feel very um, uh, satisfied. I, I knew that the I knew your initial question about uh, religion right. in the modern world would get me to talk about the evolutionary panorama in which I see human religion within the context of human evolution and cosmic evolution. I knew I, I would get talking yeah. about all that and therefore um, talk about key questions about religion, its definition, and, uh, and, and, and the way it's manifesting in the modern world in relation to science. Okay, so all that got done. But yes, I feel too that there's more to talk about. I've enjoyed the conversation very much and you as an interlocutor. So we'll do it some other time. Excellent. Have a part two. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been very illuminating. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you.